0: So may God open up that scripture. And in fact, today we're trying to cover, I would call it, three little chapters here in Acts. So we're going to have kind of three different scenes. And before we get into that, let me tell you what's going on in my household, the Easley household. We have uh, a senior going to be a senior in college, and she's home maybe for her last summer, very exciting. And then we have a going to be a senior in high school who's strategizing about things like senior pictures and college applications. And then we have my husband who's perking along, looking forward to the empty nest, which I seem to be totally frightened of. So along this spring, as it becomes clear to me that a year from now, life is gonna be so different in my household, it seemed like a really good time to start acquiring Chickens. I'm up to nine. (laughs) But, you know, the chickens weren't quite enough because it seemed to me like in this last year of my son's life, something we had never gotten to offer him was the opportunity to help raise a puppy. Yes, the puppy. So, when a new puppy comes into your household, there's like the first hour, cute little ball of fluff, so exciting, and then there's the first night, and the puppy misses, not only his mother, but his eight litter mates. And there was a lot of whining coming out of the puppy. That was on day one, and you know what? That was continuing day two, day five. We got to about day six, and we had a house guest. And the house guest arrived, and she heard the 5 a.m. puppy whining wake-up call, and she said, this is not good. It is not good that you should have a puppy that whines. What you need is a book. I have a book for you. We said, great, we found the book that day. We read the book, we summarized the book, and it was amazing. Even by that night, the book had made a big difference in our life. It had introduced the idea of a puppy crate in which you put the puppy to go take his nap like a puppy crib, only with kind of a full-on four walls. So, I began to admire what was being said in this book called The Art of Raising a Puppy by the monks of New Skete, And I thought, well, this sounds like some sort of new-age, like, puppy monks. <laughs> but as I began to look into what I found out, they were actually Eastern Orthodox monks. They had taken, as monks do, a vow that the work of their hands would be part of what supported their community and the work of their hands had been a farm. And as they were going about farming their little farm and caring for themselves, they got a German Shepherd. And they delighted in training this German Shepherd. And the German Shepherd became known in the community as this amazingly well-trained dog, so much so that people began to bring their dogs to the monks to be trained. And the monks thought, Uh, over time, well, if we're good at training dogs, maybe we could train dogs to be service animals and to be uh, police dogs and, you know, to kind of have a career, if you will. And that began to flourish. They began to be brought problem dogs. You could have residential training for the dogs. In any case, as you can see, you would say the ministry of the monks began to expand um, to this whole dog training thing. Really, a gigantic faith-work connection, people. It can happen, even in dog training. So the monks have this mission statement that by their very nature and need, dogs draw us out of ourselves and they root us in nature, making us more conscious of the mystery of God inherent in all things, which I reminded my husband, that's why we got a puppy, right? Because we're going to be more connected to God. So, may it be true. (laughs) So one of the things encouraged is after you bring your puppy home, that in the puppy's first hundred days, our little guy's name Duke, in Duke's first hundred days, he is to have a hundred new experiences. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've got to like make a list of a hundred new experiences, but let me just kind of introduce you to some of these surprises. Surprise, there was the first meeting of the vacuum cleaner. This counts. There was the first time meeting the UPS carrier, someone in uniform carrying a package. Then there was the first time realizing that there are two toys that are soft and squeak, and there are two toys that are hard, then there are two toys that are forbidden. These were all new things. Those are not two toys, those are shoes. And then just last week, there was, surprise, the first thunderstorm. Do you remember that? I wish I could imitate for you the look of wonder and amazement and distress as poor little Duke went outside and heard and saw and wanted to just crawl back in. And I thought, hey, buddy, there's a lot more where this is coming from. You've got to get used to this. And then just yesterday, surprise, first play date with 10 teenage girls from our church who were taking a retreat in our neighborhood. And they came by and asked if Duke could come out and play. Well, if I were Duke, would you rather spend the afternoon in your crate while your owner works on a sermon, or would you rather play with 10 teenage girls and maybe even go swimming and maybe even have a fan club afterwards? So in the scripture we just heard, God is doing a new and very surprising unexpected thing. It is an earth-shaking change. This is kind of a key turning point, this whole chapter 9, 10, 11 of Acts, that is what we're preaching through this summer. Acts tells us about Christianity at its most vital, most potent. Pastor Tim Keller describes it this way. Christianity was not originally a set of doctrines, but a converting power for radical inner transformation. Today we're going to look at these three scenes, and here's how the first scene goes. There's this man named Cornelius. He's a centurion, which means he oversees a hundred men in an elite Roman regiment. He's not Jewish, which means he's a Gentile, anyone outside of the Jews, but he is a righteous and God-fearing man. As, As I began to study this, I learned that that means he's a good guy who believes in one God, not many gods, not idols. Do you know some folks who are kind of like this? Good people, maybe strong leaders, moral people, good family men. Maybe they even trust in a higher power, but they're not sure what the name of that higher power is. Cornelius was like this. He gave generously to those who were in need, and he prayed to God even though he was uncertain about who that God was. Then the angel learns that Cornelius is there with his household, and he's praying. So the angel appears, or you could say Cornelius has a vision, like he connects with an angel. He sees this angel coming to him and saying, Cornelius, and he's so fearful. He says, what is it, Lord? And then the angel answers, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa who will bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter, and he's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. So this angel appears to Cornelius and basically says, we've been up in heaven, and it's kind of like the NFL draft. We've been looking out out at the prospects, and Cornelius, we pick you. And what do we want you to do? They don't tell the rest of the story. So the first thing is, Cornelius, you have been noticed by God. This angel doesn't say, Cornelius, you're a good man, you're a great man, now just keep it going. He says, Cornelius, send for Peter. The angel doesn't go on to share the amazing good news, which the angel, I'm sure, knew. The angel simply says, send for Peter. This is sort of amazing to me. It's like the angel says, I have a small part to play, and there's a bigger role, even with Peter. Now, why go get Peter? Because God is going to do something big and new. My thought is, you're an angel. Why not just tell me yourself? It would be so much more efficient. Therein lies the problem with the human race. We put ourselves in the place of God. We can take away God's mystery or surprise. What do you think of that summary of the human condition? If we went down to the Bellevue Art Fair and said to people, do you think the problem with the human race is that we put ourselves in the place of God? Do you think people would agree? I I think so. I think it's a fair definition. So the problem with the human race is that human beings put themselves in the place of God. But Cornelius knows he wants God. He needs some sort of change. We see in John chapter three, the same kind of question from Nicodemus when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't say you need to keep a few more rules or you need some to keep your traditional values. Jesus said, you must start from scratch. You must be born again by the spirit. Nick, Cornelius, even Saul, who we're gonna hear about in a second, and Peter, they're all men who are keepers of the law as they understand it. If there are rules, they're following them. And yet, sometimes just following the rules pulls us away from God, from Jesus. Are you the kind of person who seeks God by following the rules? Or maybe you're the kind of person who seeks God by living at the edge. Maybe you're the kind of person who looks down on yourself and says, I'll never be good enough who even declares yourself unclean. You doubt yourself. You doubt that God might be picking you. The truth is God is picking each one of us. We can't earn our way, we can't find our way to God. Maybe we're even experiencing God's absence. Keller says a sense of God's absence is a sign of his presence. That actually when you're missing something, It's a sense that there's something there that you want to have in your life. C.S. Lewis describes our search for God as similar to a mouse's search for a cat. Does a mouse ever really search for a cat? Or does the cat more often find the mouse? So Cornelius does this. He trusts this angel's minimal message that's going to make a maximum impact, and he follows the instructions. He sends for Peter, and over in, uh, down in Joppa, now this is kind of like one of those um, TV series where you watch it all together. Is anybody doing that now? You don't wait every week, I'm guilty of this, watching the whole series, like, in a day or something like that. So we're going to kind of go to the next episode, but it actually happened prior. It's like a flashback episode. So here's what happened At simultaneously. Um, it's lunchtime over in Joppa, and lunch isn't ready. Peter's been traveling, and he's hungry. So he goes up onto the roof, kind of a flat roof, and he looks out onto the sea, and he has a vision. He sees heaven open, and something like a king-size bedsheet is filled with four-footed animals like pigs and things. And it's being lowered down in front of him. And he hears the voice, kill and eat. And it's the voice of the Lord. And Peter says, no, I'm a good Jew. I'm not going to kill any. I'm hungry, but I'm not going to kill and eat any of that stuff. So the sheep goes back up. And he hears God's voice saying, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then the sheet comes down again. Four-footed animals. Peter says, mm-mm, I'm not doing that. It goes back up again. Third time. Does, now, Peter and three. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Okay, so Peter denied Jesus three times. And three times this sheet appears with these four-footed, unclean animals in it. So Peter needs more of the Spirit's leading. He has his own way of thinking about things and God is trying to reshape that thinking. After the sheet came down three times and maybe even Peter remembered his denial of Jesus three times, just as Peter is pondering this pack of pickled peppers, the doorbell rang, if you will, like out at the gate, he hears someone calling his voice. And while Peter is still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. So Peter now trusts God's word. He kind of leans into it. He goes down, he greets them, he invites them to spend the night. Now this wasn't his house, so I find that really interesting, but he invites them to spend the night at Simon the Tanner's house. Now what does a tanner do? A tanner takes the skins of dead animals and does something marvelous, right? Makes things with it, right? Jewish people are not supposed to be around people who take dead animals and do anything with them. So what is Peter doing in Simon the Tanner's house anyway? Maybe God was already at work in Peter. So now we have Peter, a good Jew, in Simon the Tanner's house with a couple of Gentile soldiers and they're spending the night. Hopefully they're having lunch because Peter had been hungry the whole time. So now what's going to happen? Now we're going to see Peter and Cornelius' stories coming together. They are acts of interdependence, almost like a declaration of interdependence. Peter is to go to Cornelius' house. He would only do that out of obedience to that vision because it is so against Jewish laws for him to be there. It's like Peter says, I've never walked into a Gentile's house before, and I shouldn't be here. My mother would not like this. But he goes without objection, and he stands before Cornelius and says, why did you send for me? And Cornelius tells Peter about his vision, how an angel came to him and told him, go send for this guy, and here he comes. And so Cornelius says, so I and my household are gathered here in the presence of God to hear from you. Well, Peter's a preacher what more could you want? Captive audience. So Peter starts preaching, and this is this amazing moment when the love of God in Jesus becomes available to people like you and me, most of us not Jewish by background. This is when the gospel crosses racial lines it crosses any sort of prejudice it crosses male and female it crosses rich and poor it crosses slave and free as Peter begins to speak it becomes not just for good Jews who keep the law so Peter begins to tell the gospel in this quick summary that Colin read this morning there's Father Son and Holy Spirit moved through Jesus he healed he did miracles and then they witnessed his death death on a cross then He was resurrected, and they ate and drank with him. And Peter's saying to these folks, really, I was there. It was really Jesus in the flesh after his resurrection. And Jesus commanded us to preach and to teach and to testify to all who believe and that they could receive forgiveness. This is Peter the rock at his best. Jesus said to Peter, you are the rock, and on you I'm going to build my church. But Peter had no idea. It was a big surprise that that was gonna be for Gentiles as well, not just my church Israel. So while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message. These unclean Gentiles were being made clean. They were being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And as that's happening, it's like inside Peter's mind, he's thinking, I've seen this before, I've seen this before, this is like Pentecost. Oh my gosh, they're all starting to speak in tongues, like the tongues of fire. And it's happening to the Gentiles. It's a second Pentecost right there. And Peter realizes that God has opened up salvation and he's poured out his Holy Spirit. And Peter decides they should all be baptized with water. Now later in chapter 11, Peter's gonna have to go to the other disciples and they said, Peter, what did you do? You baptized a bunch of Gentiles? and peter's like yeah because you know the holy spirit fell upon them and so if the holy spirit was baptizing them shouldn't i just go ahead and baptize them with water and he's like so on fire it's phenomenal it's so exciting and then if you actually keep reading your new testament you get all the way to galatians and you find out that because of peer pressure peter's decided well maybe not maybe we shouldn't have baptized those gentiles and paul's yelling at him so but that's galatians we're not doing that book this summer we're just doing acts so who was transformed? Cornelius. Cornelius received the Holy Spirit. He's the first Gentile, and his, because he was a leader, his whole household, and I would picture his 100 men. If you have a mighty leader, and you're the leader of 100 men, and he decides I'm for Jesus, wouldn't you think all those guys are thinking, huh, I wonder about this Jesus thing? Maybe they were even all there. But how about Peter? Was Peter transformed? In spite of his being called the rock, I think Peter had in his mind what the church was going to look like. He didn't know what God had in mind. He didn't know that we're not saved by our pedigree. We're not, there's no superior race. There's no superior culture. He didn't know that what God was going to do was build a church for all people for all time and that Peter would be the rock, the first preacher. So Christian conversion, Christian transformation starts with God. You've been noticed by God. More of the Spirit's leading. Acts of interdependence. Even Paul himself, at his transformation in chapter 9, which we're not going to do, he saw, remember last week when Rich Leatherberry was preaching, Saul was... um, um, speaking out murderous threats. He was persecuting Christians. Well, in the very next chapter, Saul's going along on the road to Damascus, and what happens to him? Jesus appears, and and Saul says, who, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm the Lord who you are persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul's blinded, and he's blinded until Another guy, Ananias, poor Ananias, he's a Christian guy who gets sent to go pray for Saul, who was persecuting Christians. But he goes out of obedience, he prays for Saul, the scales fall from Saul's eyes, and then the rest is history. He becomes Paul the Apostle. So we're gonna read more about that in the rest of Acts. So God creates this interdependence that we need one another. The evangelist Peter is converting Cornelius and his household. But Cornelius and his household, the converts, are also converting the evangelist. So we go to serve, but we are also served. We go to offer ourselves, offer our God, and offer love. And what comes back to us? The very love of God, the very service and humility of Jesus himself. So in this scripture, we are learning that there is nobody who is too young or too old or too big or too small, who has too many tattoos or weird hair or a broken down car or a Rolls Royce. There is nobody that God doesn't want to invite into his kingdom. This past week was day camp for elementary students at Bell Press, and I was in my office um, writing a sermon, and I heard this noise outside my office, and I opened up the door, and, you know, I didn't really even have to open up the door before I heard this sound, and what to my wondering ears and eyes would appear, but 50 students with drums like this, and over a 100 drumsticks because everybody had a pair and there was a leader in the center of the drum circle and the leader would do something like and then everybody would do it and i listened and then it got more and more complex and they would like change leaders and they would add rhythms and it would just go on and on and i began to think wouldn't it be great if we were that tuned in to the spirit of god That when we heard the rhythm, the drumbeat, the word, the voice of what God wanted to do, we would say yes. So maybe there are groups of people that you look down on and you think, you know, the message of God is probably not for them. Maybe you're kind of keeping score on other people, maybe it's even somebody in your family. Or maybe you're keeping score for yourself. Like, I I probably got that wrong, I'm not good enough, I do this. Like, this sermon, I don't know, it's not up to par with Dudley and Leatherberry. You know, we evaluate ourselves. We even have a fear of rejection. That if people knew our past, they probably wouldn't love us anymore. We even may have a fear of our wildest dreams. What do you think might be the impossible thing that God wants to do through you? You know our society is fascinated with reinventions, with new fall fashion, with makeovers, with new starts, with remodeling things. This whole idea of redemption, this is God's big idea. This is God's big surprise that he can do all things through us, that nothing is impossible with God. And he provides this Holy Spirit which comes to provide the impossible. To be free of whatever binds us, prejudice, pride, pressure, panic attacks, failure, frustration, anger, disappointment, or astonishing success and financial freedom we didn't expect, there is more for each one of us. More surprises in store. More for Peter, more for Cornelius, and surprise, even more for you and me. So it's not just a hundred new things in a hundred days. It's something new every day. For you and for me please pray with me mighty god we thank you that you desire to give us more of yourself that you desire to pour out your holy spirit even on these gathered people right now god that we would come not only to know you to love you but to be empowered by you that your very spirit would dwell in us so god i pray for your yes I pray that we would be open to the new thing that you want to do the new surprising things that you would see each of us as someone that you are choosing that we would know ourselves as beloved of god that you look at us and say that we're more than cute little people we are your partners in your rescue mission to this world so god this week give us each an assurance of your presence give us a calling. Do something new, something unexpected, we ask, in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.